Broadcasting live from the hills, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my road trippers, Mila, Louisa, and Taya. And this month, we're going to be talking about horror centered around cannibalism. We're covering the 1977 horror classic, The Hills Have Eyes, directed by Wes Craven, and the 1991 thriller, Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme, and the 2022 romantic horror, Bones and All, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcasts app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In the Hills Have Eyes, a family of seven are traveling in their RV from New York to California with plans of mining for silver in the desert along the way to celebrate the mother and father's silver wedding anniversary. The family do not heed the advice of a local who tells them to skip this part of the trip and stick to the main roads. And sure enough, they end up stranded and isolated after a wreck on one of the side roads. They separate and look for help, but each of them gradually encounters a member of a violent and deranged cannibalistic rival family. The two sides battle each other for survival as the violence escalates. We'll be french fries, human french fries. No, we are not going to be french fries. We're right here someplace on this little blue road. Mother, this road is not a blue line. It's a dotted line if it's on the map at all. Nellis Air Force Base nuclear testing site close to the public. Holy shit, Daddy! All right, everybody, shut up, that's it! So what are your opinions on cannibalistic horrors? I thought you were going to say on cannibalism. I was like, it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, no, I'm more interested to know what you think about cannibalism as a whole. We talked about it with Raw. I mean, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say. I do like it in horror, though. I think it's an interesting thing to explore because... We as people, I think, have a natural fear of being consumed because we perceive ourselves to be at the top of the food chain. And like the only other rival that you really have is polar bears and people. The other cannibalism trope is like survival. Like it'll be like pilgrims landed on America for the first time and then they run out of food and they have to eat each other. And it's like with regret, somebody died and they're like, well, meat is meat. And then it like escalates and they start killing each other for food. That's like the plot of the Until Dawn video game. It's the curse of the I'm going to bleep when you say that because it's, um, if you say it, it's going to get you. What? Okay. Apologies for my ignorance. I can't believe I just bloody married myself. I'm going to bleep it. Everyone's like, what is it? What are they talking about? They'll know. The real people will know. You had to eat someone from this podcast. Who would you eat? No, these are fighting words. And I know I'm going to get picked and I can't handle it. You're thinking highly of yourself. <laughs> giving y'all permission to eat me because I feel like my corporeal form is like, this ain't me. This is just a body. You can have it. I would only consider eating one of you if you died anyway. Okay, that's nice. The Monstrous Feminine is on Instagram, so please go leave us a comment or write us a little message. If you do engage with our content, you might get a shout out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Film Overload, who commented on our We're All Going to the World's Fair post and said, really looking forward to hearing your take on this film. My opinion keeps changing about it. Bestie, are you a Libra? Could be a Gemini, could be a Pisces, indecisive bitches. I think it's definitely one of those that you could hate upon first watch and then think about it a little harder. Thank you so much for engaging with our content. Next time, give us your full review. We want to hear it. We always want to hear your opinion. 
friendly reminder that we are also on Patreon. For £1 a month, you gain access to our Discord. For £3 a month, you get to hear cut discussion from our main episodes. And for £5, you get all that plus a bonus episode. Please support us. Any contribution helps. Did you guys enjoy it? No. Um, no. We always do this with the classics, like all the things we're supposed to watch and like definitely have to have in a category. We're like, eh, mid. It's true. I mean, okay, I, I will say the most annoying thing, and this is going to make me sound like a misogynist, but like Brenda, the young sister or the blonde sister, her voice was insufferable. And they were like deliberately told her to be like, oh my God. You know, like, I know that that was directed to her. I know that was, like, part of her character to be, like, a kind of dumb blonde-esque situation. So I'm not trying to say that this wasn't manufactured, but it was so annoying to have to listen to. Like, I feel like the whole film is just her screaming. It's She is a scream queen. I'll give her that. Necessary, even unavoidable in some scenarios. It calls attention to you. You can ask for help with a scream. Everyone knows where you are. When you're hiding, hello, this is actually quiet time. Miss <laughs> It's not the occasion. When cannibals are hunting you, it's quiet time. <laughs> like, none of them had any, not just her character, but, like, literally none of them had any kind of survival sense. Like, where were the alarm bells going off at any point? And I had to keep reminding myself that this was the 70s. Like, I don't feel like people are as cynical and, like, traveling and, like, road tripping as perhaps we are now in this in this era. They used to hitchhike like it was totally fine. Yeah. So I give this film the benefit of the doubt. Like, why would they be on high alert? But also, like, why aren't they on high alert? <laughs> like, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and then immediately revoke it. Yeah. <laughs> and say, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Once you know there's danger out there, you, you have no excuse for acting up in such a manner. Why didn't he tell his family about the dog? He decided to, like, think, I'm going to sit on that. He's like, I'm sitting on a bad boy piece of <laughs> <laughs> Because he was so traumatized, maybe? I don't know. That's fine, and I'm not trying to diminish that. But in, like, that situation, I think your survival skill would kick in and you would communicate that something happened when your family's like, oh my god, what's happening? It wasn't something oogie-boogie supernatural that they would question it. Carol J. Clover in Men, Women, and Chainsaws had a really interesting take, but it's so wordy. But I feel like the only way I can get through it is to read it all. So I do apologize. Basically, I think like a lot of people have identified this film as either a Western or an anti-Western. Like Stephen J. Schneider classified it as a hybrid horror film, a road movie and a siege film, and a Western. And Christopher Sherritt of Film Quarterly saw it as more akin to an anti-Western. But Carol Clover, she views like this film as a city revenge horror in which... It's basically recycling typical Western tropes in which like Native Americans were, you know, demonized. But instead, in this film, they're kind of swerving that political complication and like all the nuances that come with discussing genocide and land guilt. And instead, like displacing it onto a white other, which is like a rural outcast, not educated family who have been like affected by pollution and stuff. And instead of like the kind of original frontier settlement colonial mindset it's now a more localized town city mindset where there's like 
city pollution and like taking over the countryside and invasion in that way. That's the kind of point Carol J. Clover makes. She says the first scenario assumes that the real story and the prior primary story is economic and racial drama that looms so large in our national consciousness. Urban Oya films of the 60s and 70s and the settler versus Indian films of the 30s and 40s bear an astonishing resemblance to one another, not only in plot, structure, and in political and economic sensibility, but in finer detail of appearance, character, and behavior. The difference, of course, is that the become the she says rednecks and the white settlers become city vacationers and the cavalry becomes a corporation. The new story of land plunder is a story of dam building, lumbering, mining, oil drilling, nuclear testing, toxic dumping, all of which work in the same way that frontier settlement earlier worked to enrich the haves at the expense of the have-nots. The justification for that process, how to acknowledge the guilt so as to allow ourselves, the film version of ourselves being city people, to get on with business, lies ready in the hand of the traditional story of an Indian atrocity repaid with genocide and a land grab. That older story is, of course, no longer tellable in its original terms. What makes it tellable in modern terms is precisely its hybridization. The updating is perversely brilliant by making the representative of urban interests, what would normally be taken as the white male elite, a woman, and the representatives of the country, what in the Western would have been Native Americans, white males, these films exactly reverse the usual system of victim sympathies. That is, with a member of the gender underclass, a woman, representing the economic overclass, the urban rich, and members of the gender overclass, males, representing the economic underclass, the rural poor, and feminist politics of rape has been deployed in the service of class and racial guilt. Raped and battered, the haves can rise to annihilate the have-nots, all in the name of feminism. So that was kind of a lofty quote, but I think what she's getting at is that this is a city rape revenge story in which they use rape as a mechanism, like the cannibals rape Brenda, and that is like the reason why it's okay to kill them. But at the same time, they're heavily coding them as Native Americans with like all their attire, which is quite offensive, actually. It's like a way of like still doing the frontier settlement, but in a more modern time era, like decade, essentially. I thought that was an interesting interpretation. She doesn't always use the best language, though. I mean, this is a dated text, but yeah. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Regardless of if it's contemporary and you might have like a more Air Bunny sympathetic view towards Native Americans, it's still portraying them as savages within the very taboo practice of cannibalism. Like, this film is still boring as hell. I get all of the, like, road movie, anti-Western influences. I feel like this is becoming a pattern. I think Zaper said how I am disappointed by horror classics. It was so boring. It was exploitative and not in a fun way. I, I know they seem, like, at odds, but I don't think they are. Not absurd enough to be campy and fun. Not scary enough to be disturbing. It was like watching a movie some teenage boys made in their backyard with a fucking video camera. This is a scathing review. I just was so disappointed with it. I definitely understand what the quote is saying in the opinion, but I do think the film is a bit deeper than a rape revenge story because they also burned the father's body in front of them and have already like murdered him when they actually start fully going for revenge on the cannibal family. So I think there's like, there's a lot more going on than like just Brenda's rape. And I also don't feel like Brenda is framed as the protagonist as much as Bobby is. And Brenda's just kind of like there. I think they just kind of add the rape, honestly, as like a another layer of condemnation, which rightfully so, it's horrific. But I think it's more of like a, a whistle in this movie to kind of symbolize like 
the Zeratarian part, this like white family, um, and these savages are raping a white woman. I think it's more so there for that than like anything else because it wasn't needed. Like they could have just been cannibals and that would have been enough. What I struggle with in like classic horror films is just so many layers of exploitation. And then there's like some of the performances behind them from the actors. You find out they were under a lot of stress or they were being mistreated or harassed by the directors. And it just adds layers to stuff. But I think in hindsight makes what people have glorified as like the greatest art in the world is like, this is pretty exploitative and it didn't age well. I have a very love-hate relationship with classic horror films. I quite like some of Wes Craven's works and I think he is a good director, but like this and Serpent and Snake were were both on the highly exploitative whatever. It's I think called. we should be drink every time we don't say that title correct. <laughs> um both of those were just like a, a miss for me. There's a lot of info dumping that I was like, none of this really matters because these families are strangers to each other. So like what other film did we do where they decided to hit us with so much backstory when we could have just like accepted it? Truth or dare, it was truth or dare. Yes. Sometimes the scariest bit is not knowing. Like I do want to know why they're like messed up. I don't necessarily like need to know why they're attacking this family beyond that their like territory has been invaded. Like that's enough for me. They just attack any stranger that like comes in their vicinity. But then thinking about what led to them being cannibals, I guess could be scary. And that's kind of what I was expecting. So that anytime I was receiving those info dumps, I was like irrelevant, not scary, don't care. I think that was just because it was like Mila said, a bit boring. I was going to say on this like white on white violence point, I can definitely see like wanting to make a Western and it's no longer PC to have Native Americans as like the antagonists or the counterparts or whatever. But also like is legitimate beef, but like, like class beef and like this idea of like what a redneck is or like it's the same thing. Like the proximity to nature makes you more savage. So I think white people in the United States also think that of other white people, like white people who live out in backwoods, whatever, are subconsciously like more savage to other white people who come from money or come from the city. Even they could be broke in the city and still feel better than somebody who's from, you know, the back mountains. So when I was watching it, I didn't immediately make that association of like, oh, you wanted to have some Native Americans in here and you just couldn't. The class beef was enough and like, white people like genuinely that is how they maintain their belief in white supremacy is that they're also better than other white people and that it's actually not about race it's just that they're better and did whatever and the attitudes of the family rolling through like what they were coming through to get silver was it for the silver anniversary like they're also coming through to like just pilfer the land which again another parallel to what happens in a western and a classic western but then i guess my question based off of that is in addition to clarifying the cannibal's backstory is like, what is an anti-Western in this context? Like, because I didn't see the parallel necessarily between the like savage white family and other types of savages, like what makes this an anti-Western? Basically, Wes Craven himself and like how the film was intended to be received in a book called Conversations with Directors, an anthology of interviews from literature and film by Walker and Johnson. Craven says that it's meant to be about rage against American culture and like the bourgeoisie. So it's intended to be quite critical. So for example, you're right, it is about a class divide. Like countless critics have like identified that there is an obvious class divide. So that's where the kind of rage against bourgeoisie comes from. Like 
you know, you're angry at this family who do have an incredible amount of privilege and are like kind of coming and like mining. And Carol J. Clover, like I said, kind of views this as like another way that I'm quoting country folk are the direct victims of urban interests in the case of the military industrial complex because their land is being pillaged for stuff and they're on a nuclear testing site and it's affected their children. D.N. Rodewick in The Enemy Within, The Economy of Violence in the Hills Have Eyes, says we're just supposed to understand these families as like being two sides of the same coin. So you're meant to kind of see as the film draws to a close, them become more and more similar. Like if people are like pushed to lengths, they will behave in the same way as like savages, I quote. I'm not saying that's like the strongest point, but I'm saying it's trying to like similarity between the two. Stephen J. Snyder said that in Sense of Cinema that like, you know, you could substitute the cannibal family with like any other, they're just meant to be any kind of other marginalized class in America as a stand-in. Like, I don't think it lands that you're meant to have sympathy for them because at the same time you're like, yeah, get them because they're scary. They're the subject of the horror. It does not land. Yeah. I think there is like questions of power that are raised though. Like that's what Carol J. Clover says. Like she says that, you know, there's a question of like outlaw and it's actually quite ironic because like there's this policeman who's like the symbol of like society and like enforcing like civilization right but like he's so easily taken out by them so it's kind of poking holes even if you're not sympathizing with the cannibal family because they're cannibals and they're scary i think you can still see that this is putting some putting these two things in juxtaposition in order to complicate like what we think of as like civilization and power the audience is absolutely going to identify more with the road tripping family than the cannibals. Like they're going to see themselves as the victims and the in the good bad guy dichotomy. I struggle to see how this is a, a, a valid critique of classism because it kind of just feels like people who are poor are gonna commit crimes or cannibals, and I think that's a really odd way to critique classism. Like it's not really rooting the problem when you're framing people as as such a strong victim in a situation where they're like enduring horrific violence and murder and a sexual assault it it makes it a really hard way for people to identify with the have-nots in that situation not just immediately see them as the other and this is 77 this is slowly coming into like peak punitive public time where people are like everyone needs to be locked up we need to be hard on crime so I just I don't know I feel like this is not landing to me as a great class critique and it's to me more so feeding into the stereotype of who a criminal is I mean there were so many serial killers and like high profile people who were in crime rings at this time and none of them were like a specific type of person like the guy who ended up being like the golden state killer it was like a police officer. I agree with Mila, like it's boring. There's not <laughs> there's not a whole lot going on. I feel like there's just such a difference between how, you know, Wes, good old Wes, Monsieur Craven sees the film and like how maybe potentially we're watching the film or we're receiving the film. Because he said that he, in that same interview that I quoted before, he says that he thinks it shows the possibility of change in America or something. And I was trying to really like rack my brain of like why that would be the case. And I thought like, of course, I guess you have the daughter and she's like the the cannibal daughter, I mean, or part of the family. I guess she is a sympathetic character, like of all of them. Like you do feel for her. She's literally enslaved. I guess like she acts as an agent of change and it's like through that and then like a baby symbolizing innocence is like a kind of bonding or like a common ground thing like there's there's definitely that like maternal instinct in order to like reaccess a sense of humanity maybe in that way I also thought it was weird that like 
Lynn dies, and I kind of thought it was a little bit of a sex equals death scenario, although Doug, her husband, doesn't die, but it just seemed like it was punishing her a little bit because we see her enjoying herself, which is great, but (laughs) why would she die? And it almost feels like that cannibal daughter is, like, hinted to maybe be, like, the natural substitute. Like, she is, like, pretty and maternal towards this baby and now Doug's single and I was like I don't know so I was like is there supposed to be maybe that kind of hint of change of like integration into their family remember how we had the same talk with the serpent and the rainbow (laughs) (laughs) where we were like they love to take like someone who is either like a person of color or from the the group that they're criticizing and it's always a woman and she's always like maternal it's up in the air of whether she has feelings for the man this is the same thing i mean aside from like just how like absurdly complex it is to try and insert a white narrative in a landscape and just all of the coded ways that the cannibal family could be read as Native American, even if it's in a way to critique and reflect on who are the real savages within white America. I feel like that is just, was clearly not a task for Wes Craven to have a century of visual imagery of violence and horrendous brutality done against a people and then for you to be like I'm just gonna keep all of that like horrible violent association and connotations that comes with that and then try and talk about class without acknowledging any of the racial politics that come along with that but also just like I don't think in itself it's a great class critique because at least I believe there is never any sense that the cannibal family are shown in any sort of sympathetic light in any sort of wider context of apart from like the you know comment about the nuclear test site there isn't any sense of injustice that might have been done to this family where they live there isn't anything developed there so that you would make a connection between oh maybe like the government the military used this land as a nuclear test site and then this family as a result of that then became horribly deformed and inbred and then turned to cannibalism which i think cannibalism used in this way is the laziest fucking thing it's a really cheap way to elicit horror that i don't think even works very well you mentioned how the father was a police officer he would have been a figurehead in the community that represents civilization but then no connection is made in the film between the fact that he's a police officer and the fact that he dies, the fact that this cannibalistic family kills him, nothing comes of that together. So there's like no connection in between these ideas. It's just like the checklist of a Western and the characters are so dull and they're so one-dimensional and the women won't stop fucking screaming their heads off. It's so, so dumb to me. We've hated movies because they're like harmful. This is just like, and what Wes Craven said when asked about like this anti-Western in that interview. When I wrote the original script, I was thinking of a new version of The Grapes of Wrath. In that draft, 
people were leaving New York because of the really horrendous pollution. It takes place just before the 1984 primaries. In other words, right about now. People are trying to escape the pollution and going from state to state. Each state has a checkpoint and you'd have to hold a passport. No one is allowed in California because it's one of the Sunbelt states. Everyone wants to go there because the fuel prices are so high. So you have a middle class family trying to sneak into California via their trailer, via the desert, and they're set upon by this tribe. I was talked out of that opening and of course much of it was the window dressing, but you do have the Grapes of Wrath and this modern Western. Just for context, The Grapes of Wrath is a John Steinbeck book, Mila. Mila and I were in a bookshop once and she held up a John Steinbeck book and said, is he famous? That was an immaculate takedown. I love you not knowing who Steinbeck was. (laughs) Anyway, set during the Great Depression, it focuses on like a poor family, tenant farmers, and there's drought and hardship and a hopeless situation. They're trapped by the Dust Bowl. And so they have to go to California to seek jobs and stuff like that. But obviously none of that actually got put in. So I'm like, okay. There's also the fact that there are like war readings of this film. And I don't think they're necessarily as subtle as perhaps we're making it sound in this conversation. I think it's like if you read into it, maybe you could see it. The fact that it's an air bombing test site and there's that scene with the plane and like that it's mentioned that it's nuclear. And I think he was like trying to weave in a kind of anti-war sentiment because again in that um, interview, he was saying that he does believe in the family, like he'd just gotten married. But he said... If we discover a certain amount of rage in examining these institutions, it's obviously because they have some emotional significance to us. Otherwise, we could brush them off very easily. I think that some of the myths about what constitutes a man and a woman, what religion is or isn't, what patriotism is, are issues that have changed profoundly. Another critic, John Kenneth Muir, and this is from Wiki, said that you could potentially, like some people have interpreted it as an allegory for the Vietnam War, and I was like, I don't know how. But that's complicated by the fact that the Carters defeat their enemies unlike American forces in Vietnam. And I'm like, I'm not getting any kind of Vietnam interpretations. Basically, he was going to make their um their like hut their living quarters out of like war material to try to make it a bit more obvious that they're like a victim of like a disregarded America, but the budget didn't permit it. The opposing family needed a clearer reason why they are the opposition as a way to challenge why this middle class white family are held up as the ideal when actually they buy into so many of the corrupt systems in America and benefit from them. Because otherwise they're just fucking evil cannibals. Oh no, that reminded me of something I wanted to say earlier, which is that I keep comparing this movie to us, like Jordan Peele's Us, not Us, but Jordan Peele's Us, because there is a family versus a family. The moral anchor is that we can tell, even before the plot twist, we know that they have been wronged in some way. Like, yes, I am obviously rooting for the family that we've been introduced to and that they're lovely and they're still this middle class, white bread, American family. They're not white, but they're like of that echelon, the same type that's road tripping in this movie. I can empathize with them and empathize with the doppelgangers at the same time. And still, we've talked about how the world building in that movie is like, we don't really know what's going on or why it's like that. But we don't need to to empathize with them at least. We have enough information to know like something terrible has gone on. It's not done in such a cheap, exploitative way as simply making them deformed cannibals. I hate that deformity and disfigurement is used as a cheap way to elicit horror. If we're like meant to critique the family, the like middle class family, right? I think there is a bit of it in the father. First of all, in like one of the first like five minutes, he uses like the N word with a hard ER. I think it's like done with the intention of like showing 
us that this guy's like not a good guy like he's like sexist to his wife he's like it's your directions that got us into this and he's like don't be hysterical honey so he's like introduced as like this asshole right but then Stephen J. Snyder and Sins of Cinema read like his crucifixion as like an utter rejection of like Judeo-Christian ethics I think there is like the fact that he is crucified maybe is like showing that like hypocritical nature of that like white American family because the, the wife is like let's pray and put our faith in the good lord and then he's like crucified and burned alive which actually burning alive is quite a pagan thing to do I mean it's also a, a martyred death it's like it doesn't commit enough. Like it sets him up as an asshole who maybe you want to be taken down. But then actually we see the mother like cry over his death. It's not like you're like, a, yeah, get him moment. I see that you're trying to do the work of like problematizing this idea of a middle class family and this like dickhead father, this like racist sexist father, this like structure, this authority, this power, this class. But then it's like you're making me hate the monstrous cannibals who are like this weird disfigured other who we know not a lot about. It's just, it's not, it's like I see what you're trying to do, but you didn't do it we're disfigured other who also frame for frame can be replaced with native americans it's not it's not the best but then this film was like really really well received people just naturally feel the instinct to defend it because it's such a precedent in the industry of like where things are gonna go and so many people take inspiration from it that it just kind of gets idealized of course we want to acknowledge that but um sometimes those films are simply thematically are shockingly poor and visually i think this film is really underwhelming i want to hear what was said about the violence thing i couldn't get the beginning of this quote because it was a free preview he says the deal of mayhem directed towards women but on the other hand i never felt that this was an inaccurate depiction of violence that is directed against women in our society again the horror film has been more honest about this than other genres in my films women have certainly had extremely important roles and have really been the most insightful and strongest characters phyllis in the last house is one of my strongest people ruby in hills is a central figure in many ways the issue of violence directed at women could be aimed at any genre there's always a line where something becomes mere exploitation and then he says like Sherry asked about violence in general and horror and he said that he basically doesn't want to bother himself with that debate and that people have the same debate about pornography the same debate from the 50s and 60s he said I think these things sort themselves out films that serve no purpose to society just disappear except perhaps to a very small segment I don't happen to believe that movies cause people to go out and commit violent acts of course people who live in a very hermetic existences and consume these films as a steady diet might be influenced but i suspect that they are being influenced by boxing or cockfights or whatever which i suppose is not a new argument i'm not really an expert on the subject of violence in general i don't go to violent films never go to slasher films i'm more interested in psychic violence and the denial of terror in family dynamics the violence itself is almost incidental to me i go to see horror films on a very spotty basis i'll see anything done by tobe hooper his texas chainsaw massacre simply amazed me i'll see anything cronenberg does but these guys have very special visions the question of violence is again almost incidental cronenberg does doesn't even regard himself as a horror director and I share the same feeling. I feel like this is such a pattern with male directors who will justify extreme violence, particularly towards women, especially rape on screen, behind this sludge of theory, of philosophy. They'll be like, but violence does happen to women, doesn't it? And why wouldn't you want to depict that on screen? It, it's realistic. It does happen. And then it'll be like the most deranged situation you've ever found yourself in.
Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out. <laughs>